And so, Lord, we know, we know, Lord, we know our, home, our hearts are prone to wander. And we wander. And so, God, you have bound us to your love. You loved us first. You love us better than we love ourselves. And with your redeeming grace, through Jesus on the cross, and the promise of forgiveness and resurrection, in that we shall rest. And we all said, Amen. Amen. Have a seat, everyone. I'm uh, kind of just doing a quick series on what I'm learning lately. And this is the last one. And this one is about money and possessions and eternity. So we begin with a scripture. And you may do well to want to ponder it and read it over yourself. So it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you brought your print Bible or if you pull it up on your phone. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 6 through 10. Um, it's pretty straight ahead. Um, but uh, yeah. First Timothy chapter 6 is a good one for you to have in front of you after it disappears on the screen. Of course, Paul says, this is Paul in his letter to Timothy, of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. And we were talking about contentment this morning. Of course there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it, Paul says. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pains. It is a straightforward passage. I think Paul is quite easy to understand. There's only one thing that ever goes wrong with this passage, and that's when it gets misinterpreted, as it often does, where it says money is the root of all evil, and money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is a root of all evil, all sorts of evils. So just make sure you always keep that clear anytime you hear Money is the root of all evil. It is not. Money is, can be good, bad, or indifferent. Um, it is the love of it, or, or at least the you know, possession of it, uh, or it possessing us, that leads to all sorts of bad things. So I'm talking about what I'm learning these days. Not, let's be really clear. It's not what I have learned, E-D. It is what I am learning, I-N-G. Okay, present participle, keep it straight because this is being baked as we go on this particular morning, okay? So, um, I shall afflict you with it presently. The Wilburns moved to Lake Winnebago last month. That's where we begin. It was a move that slammed into us as an opportunity to purchase a lake house off the market and living at the lake is something that we had dreamt of for, for 30 years, and, uh, but never really considered it ever a possibility. It's just one of those dream things. Uh, and we've always liked the water. Uh, we've always liked the lake. And we never thought that'd become a reality. But life progresses in strange ways. And at our age and stage of life, it kind of became sort of something like, wonder if that could ever really happen. And our financial circumstances financial circumstances suddenly really set up a very real uh, chance to fulfill a dream. And this was also not really expected. For starters, 
our former house had been paid off for a few years. And having never had a house paid off, that was like a new weird deal. No debt. We hadn't had any debt for years, and we paid cash for everything as part of our uh, way of running our household. And so the house was paid off, and so that was something. So we didn't have any debt. And then Lori went back to, my wife went back to work full time. And uh, that was cool because now suddenly we had more money in the house. So that was another change. And then my daughter received this totally awesome scholarship to Baylor University because she's so freaking brilliant. And, um, you know, and so we didn't have to pay nearly as much for college all of a sudden. And so that was another thing that happened. And suddenly, you know, uh, my wife, she, she's talking with the lender guy on the phone, you know, and they're looking at our finances and he says to her like, so what are you people? Some kind of Dave Ramsey people or something like that. And, and pretty much the answer is, yeah, yeah, we are. As a matter of fact, we think Dave Ramsey's a little lame. Uh, we kind of push a little further than that, you know? Um, so I think we're even more so, I mean, we start with various biblical principles, don't buy what you can't afford. Don't spend what you don't have. Um, only go in debt for things that appreciate. Another thing. By the way, you know, the reality hits is that your house may be appreciating, and we call it an asset and an investment, but you realize on a 30-year mortgage you pay for your house three times, right? Did you get that out of your house? Maybe these days you do. But nonetheless, as the title lady told us, sitting there very politely and her being very kind as we signed a stack of papers, she said, yes, you don't actually make money off of the sale of your house. It's really a place to raise your family. Okay, got it. So nonetheless, it's still a great idea. Okay, other things we've learned. Only, yeah, only go debt for things to appreciate. And above all, save, save, saved, and do not spend, spend, spend. I drove a salvage car for years until I burned up the engine. I love the salvage car. I was not suffering for Jesus by driving a salvage car. It was just a good economic idea. I love driving a salvage car. Park as close to me as you want in the parking lot. I don't care. You're, you're, you're lost, not mine. I burned it up on the way to the airport. And talk about living right two weeks before. Anybody else? I'm a, we can have a very, very small group about this. Two weeks before, I bought the replacement car not knowing that I was going to burn the next car up. Am I living right or what? I was like, it's my only money finance. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's my only money finance, uh, finance success story, you know, that I actually drove a car into the ground and had one waiting for it. So, uh, yeah, that's the way that worked. So, um, and then here's another thing. Lakeland Community's financial challenges, these things we've been doing since 2004, have presented us with callings, a calling to become generous people for the Wilburns. I would have never chosen to be as generous as what the community around here has asked us to do. But what I'm learning these days is exactly what all of us are pondering when it comes to generosity and the Christian life and everything Paul's talking about. How much is enough? How much should you give away? How, how much? What percentage of your income are you supposed to give away? Around here at Lakeland Community, we call this the Schindler's List Syndrome. Schindler's List, 1993 Steven Spielberg movie 
about uh, World War II and the Holocaust, uh, real history stuff. And Spielberg made a movie about Oskar Schindler, a wartime Nazi party German who um, began to grow a heart for the Jews that were working in his factory that were being enslaved and that the Nazis wanted to exterminate them, kill, murder 1,100 of them. And he manipulated and connived the Nazis, and he saved 1,100 lives in his factory. Beautiful movie, very moving. And I'm just going to spoil it for you and show you, the, show you the end. I mean, it's history, so it's not like I can really spoil it. So I'd like to show you the end of the movie, uh, the very, very end. So Everett, if we want to roll that. I could have got more up. Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I made more money, <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea. If I just... There will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Good, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person is there. For this. I could have gone. One more person. Powerful scene, if you've seen the movie. How much is enough? The car, how many lives is it worth? A gold pin, a piece of jewelry, how much is it worth? What could have been done with that money? The money you and I spend so easily. Around Lakeland, we call this the Schindler's List Syndrome because it's a quandary that we seem to never be able to come to grips with. On one hand, we think it's so very, very simple. It's food and clothing. That's what Paul says. And on the other hand, well, it's not that simple. I could have done more. It's the proposition any serious-minded Christ follower must ponder and wrestle through. How much is enough? The question is critical in light of Paul's letter to Timothy, stating, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Food and clothing, that's all Paul needs. That's all we need, right? Food and clothing, maybe a warm place to stay on a cold week in October. Maybe 
maybe some health insurance in case we get sick, maybe a car to get to work so we can pay for the warm place, maybe some nicer clothes, you know, some clothes that are appropriate for work, maybe some car insurance in case the car, you know, breaks or we have an accident, or, and then home insurance in case something goes wrong with the home, like the heater breaks, or, and then life insurance in case the other two insurances don't, aren't needed anymore. Maybe, maybe, maybe just because the grind of work and the routine is so much we need to get away every now and then, take a breather, and so we need a vacation or two or maybe three if we can pull that off and we have the time, you know. And uh, then every now and then it'd be fun to enjoy the, the family going out to eat, maybe do something special, treat ourselves a little bit to something so everything's not just so burdensome. And uh, And then the... Sofa's torn up, so we just are going to replace the sofa. And then we got to have a reason to sit on the sofa, like a new 60-inch 4K HD screen with surround sound. And then the, well, then the sofa's for the kids. Let them slob that up. I get the theater seating, you know. And then take the old television and stick it out on the patio because there's no place to put it in the house. And that means we got to get some cooler patio furniture, and it'd be nice, since it's cold outside, to have a hot tub to sit in while we wash the television, an extra fridge in case we get too hot in the hot tub, you know, because you've got to have something cool to drink. I mean, we're going to get a used fridge with some hand-me-down. We want to go crazy at this point or anything like that. And then, you know, maybe during the summertime, it's for the family. We get a little boat so I, my son and I can go fishing. That'd be cool, you know. That'd look good, real Norman Rockwell painting-type moment. And then, but then what about the daughter? So we should get a bigger boat so we can all be in the boat. And then where are we going to put the boat? In the boat dock. And so now we have a lake house. <laughs> How's that happen? Food and clothing, huh? Not, not so much in 21st century American modern suburbia. It's easy to slip off and move, move away. And suddenly we become just not generous. The Christian model that I followed was always John Wesley back in the 18th century. I wasn't around the 18th century. I've read about him. It's not, you know. Um, The Christian model was John Wesley. The young John Wesley once encountered a chambermaid who did not have a coat. He noticed she did not have a coat, and it was England's winter. And so he reached into his pocket to grab some coins to hand it to her so she could go buy a coat, and he did not have enough coins in his pocket so she could buy a coat and at that moment he decided to change his life about how he handled his money it changed his life and in 1731 Wesley began to limit his expenses so he would have money for the poor that year he earned 30 pounds and lived on 28 pounds he'd just taken a teaching job at Oxford University Made 30 pounds and he lived on 28. His living expenses were 28 out of 30. Gave away two pounds. Next year, his income doubled to 60 pounds. He gave away 32 pounds. Still just lived on 28. And then um, it just kept going like that. The, the next year after it turned 60, then it went to 90. And he still gave away, you know, 62 pounds. It's just the way it kept going. Later in life, for one year, he earned 1,400 pounds 
and he had bumped up his living on 28 pounds to 30 pounds. He lived on 30 pounds and gave away the rest on a year when he earned 1,400 pounds. Right? Wesley had no family. He didn't save anything, contrary to his own teaching. And he was afraid, he said, of laying up treasure on earth rather than laying up treasure in heaven. He didn't want to be able to have to stand in front of God and say, I didn't, I didn't do enough. And when John Wesley died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was some miscellaneous coins found in his pockets and I think around six pounds in his dresser drawer. It's estimated that John Wesley in his lifetime gave away some 30,000 pounds. My goal is to try and give away 25% of our gross household income. I was doing it for a while. And then actually, you know, it, uh, well, you enter into the optimum earning years. You know, the optimum earning years. Between age 40 and 55, you will earn triple what you earn for the same effort as when you're in your 20s. When you're in your 20s, you guys in your 20s, you know, God bless you. I mean, you're working your finger to the bone, and what are you making? A bunch of money for somebody else. That's the way it goes. But don't you worry, because when you, this is all like total idealism. When you get to be 40, you're going to earn triple. Okay? That's just the way it's supposed to go. Of course, this is all ideal. And you're like, well, I didn't get that. Like, mm mm-hmm, that's the way it works. So, what's supposed to happen, what we assume, is that as we get older, we're supposed to increase our income. As we get older, we're supposed to increase our income, and we tell ourselves as Christians, and my generosity is going to go up. I'm going to get more John Wesley as I go. My, my age is just a flat line, because not that flat line, but you know what I mean. It's just an even time marches on. And, and your income goes up, and then your generosity is going to go, woohoo, way off the chart. But it doesn't happen that way. What went wrong? See, the assumption is, is that we think our lifestyle is just going to stay the same. And that would afford the margin of generosity. But it doesn't go that way. Lifestyle doesn't stay the same. Lifestyle doesn't stay the same, does it? Once you have kids, you want a larger home. And once you, you want your kids then to flourish. And you want your kids to have an awesome life. And, you know, because you've been given this responsibility to raise these kids right. And so you're throwing everything at them. You know, so middle class, by the way, so research shows that middle class actually uh, divests their money into their children. They pay it forward into their kids. They, they pay for camp, they pay for school, they pay for cars, they, you know, find all the connections, they send them off to Canacuck Camp and the Ozarks and stuff like that, and they, they invest in their kids. They, they pay it into their kids. They, if, that's what middle class does, right? They pay it into them. Sports, travel, trips, send them here, send them there, pay for it all, totally worth it. And what happens to lifestyle as outlier Christian uh, songwriter Bruce Coburn wrote years ago that I still remember. Bruce Coburn wrote this lyric. He said, you get bigger as you go. No one told me, I just know. You get bigger as you go. 
No one told me, I just know. And that's what happens in life. You get bigger as you go. No one told me, I just know. That's just what happens. You get bigger. Lifestyle gets bigger. You stop losing your 22-year-old idealism. And we begin to then rationalize that the Apostle Paul and people like John Wesley, well, you know, the Apostle Paul, that guy's on his trip to martyrdom. Of course, food and clothing would be like a luxury to him. And John Wesley, that guy was never married. He never had a house. He didn't have kids. He didn't have all these responsibilities. Of course, those guys could give away all their money. So we start rationalizing. They didn't have to have a mortgage. They didn't have any cars to upkeep, no insurance. They didn't own anything. So sure, they could be content. That doesn't answer, though, how much is enough for you and me. What about us? How much is enough? What about the Schindler's List syndrome for us? In reality, as our age and income increase, it becomes difficult to live the generous Christian lifestyle. Unless you surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ and a community that everyone is doing the same sort of lifestyle thing. Because that's how come lifestyle got out of hand anyway. It's because of the Joneses next door or down the street. I know it's not really keeping up with the Joneses, but it's enough. You know, because you're watching the Chiefs game and on comes some car commercial or beer commercial. And then something in your head says, I need that car. Maybe even that beer, but not together. So, but if you surround yourself with brothers and sisters and fellow Christians in a village, in a community, if you surround yourself with other people who are living and making sacrificial things in their life and are being generous, then you too become generous. And that's what happened with the Wilburns. That's what happened with the Wilburns. The financial challenges that we've done around here since 2004 We need financial challenges like 2020 to shake us loose from the bondage of suburban living. We need to be faced with with driving the same car for another three years, living in the same house, using the same carpet, keeping the same countertops, not taking as many vacations, making some sort of sacrifice for somebody else. All because someone less fortunate than us needs beans and rice. They need one good meal a day. Their children need to eat as well. Because somebody needs an operation to save their life. Because somebody needs a salary so they can actually go and preach the gospel in a, in a country where it's not allowed to be Christian. For scholarships, for living expenses, to, to get somebody redeemed from slavery off the street. And not to even mention then keeping the church village building up so we can enjoy what God has given us and be good stewards of what we have. All of that. And those financial challenges bind us together and turn us into generous people. We need to stare getting bigger in the face and just say no. Because others are saying no as well. And that's what financial challenges do. They make us smarter with our money. Our, financial, our participation in financial challenges trained us to save. And it trained us to give. It made us sharp to live on less for the sake of somebody else. And one more thing the financial challenges did. They shake us, they shake us awake to the fact that every heartbeat, 
that you and I pound is a gift from God. You are not in charge of your life. Everything you have is a gift. Every breath you take, every sunrise you see, every heartbeat is a gift from God above. And that perspective will turn you into a different person. You see, it's the clutching and the grubby and the expectation that turn us into angry, scared, scarcity, fearful people who hold on to our money so tight when instead God's asking us to let go. For the sake of somebody else. And that is freedom. And that will shape you into a different kind of human being. You and I are not in charge of our lives. We are not owners of our stuff and of our own health. We're stewards. We, are, we have been giving something to steward. It's just like right back in the Garden of Eden. You don't own the garden. You, you take care of it. You're stewards. That, that same metaphor has been going on for, forever. We're stewards of the life on loan from God. As the psalmist proclaimed... This is Psalm 90. Says this. Our years come to an end like a sigh. The days of our life are 70 years or perhaps 80 if we're strong. Even then their span is only toil and trouble. And they are soon gone and we fly away. It might sound sad, but it's actually a freeing psalm. It says like, just like Jesus said, each day holds enough troubles of its own. Don't worry. It's okay. Tomorrow will be another day. Daily bread. That's what we get. It's okay. You go out, you pick up the manna. Don't try and save it up. You know, every day is a gift. What I'm learning these days is what Wesley preached about money. Earn as much as you can. Save as much as you, as you can. And give away as much as you can. Do that. And this, and, and then I'm learning this. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have. Cherish what you've been given on loan. Earn, save, give generously, and be careful about becoming bitter in life. And do not consider God a cruel taskmaster who's trying to punish you by saying you should have given more. You should have given more. It's not enough, and I want more. The psalm says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our money. This church doesn't need your money. We need to give away the money. We're all fine. I've done portable church before. I can do it out of my trunk. I did that before. Hurt my back, but I can do church out of my trunk. You know what I'm saying? The question is, do we need to become generous people? And the answer is yes, we do. Because that changes us into human beings. That changes the world and the lives around us. And that's what we were put here on earth to do. That's what I'm learning these days. Our lives are not our own. How much longer do I have? By the gift of God, hopefully many years. But there's no guarantee. Make them count, everyone. Consider consider what will be said by your children at your funeral. Think well of what people say you say about you at the end. He was a good father. He was a generous man. 
someone who'd give you the shirt off his back. They didn't hold on to anything too tight. He wasn't stingy or scared. He trusted God for his next paycheck, and he never considered God's gift his own. God's gift his own. He was a good steward. He understood stewardship. He knew how to live on a little, and he knew how to live on a lot and how to share. He made a huge difference because he became a generous soul. And his life was not his own. His life was on loan from God above. Let him say something like that. Live for that. Not something like, well, he was a stingy old curmudgeon and he held on to everything he had and he didn't share with anybody. I guess he thought he could take it with him. I still want to give away 25% of my gross annual income. I was there for a while and something slipped off. Actually, that whole like optimum earning years just took over, you know. Now, you know, you guys all know what I make, so it ain't on my side of the fence. It's on the wife's side of the fence, you know what I'm saying? But so, because I'm just a pastor. That's cool. What's God called you to give away? 10, 25, half, 90, all of it? I don't know. Maybe some of you got some sort of John Wesley calling in your life. Maybe you'll model for the rest of us. But I know one thing. God has called you and I to be cheerful. As first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says it right there. Each of you must give as much as you have made up your mind. And reluctantly, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's how you measure how you're doing on generosity. If you're doing it and it makes you furrow your brow and you get angry about it, like, uh uh-oh, check in. But if you can do it with an open hand and you realize what you're doing and you can nod into it and you say, this is good. It's not because God's going to reward me. I'm not earning God's love. I'm just simply doing it out of a cheerful, giving heart. That's a good place to be. That's our measurement on how to know, on knowing how much is enough. But Paul's warned us, so heed the warning, everyone. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Money is not the problem, but the love of money is a trap. And once you hold your money too tight, you ruin your heart and you lose your faith and you reap many pains, Paul says. But if we view our lives as a gift and our home and our possessions and everything that we have, then we live free and light. I don't know what the future holds, but right now the Wilburns have moved to the lake. Maybe we'll be there for a while, maybe we won't. But we'll steward our home just the way we did when we started Lakeland in the last home. And the staff ran up and down the stairs and we ate Pop-Tarts in the kitchen. You know, we'll, we'll do church events there. Friends will come over. We'll welcome strangers. And who knows, maybe even, you know, angels unaware will we'll entertain. So what am I learning about possessions, money, and eternity? I'm learning that age and life stage do not remedy the Schindler's List syndrome. How much is enough? Why? Because generosity is 
always bottomless. The poor you will have with you always. Do as much as you can about it. But life is not bottomless. You have been given one life, and you should steward it well for the love of God. Because generosity will always be required of us for the one life we've been given. I will strive to give away 25% of my income. And maybe that will be enough for me right now. Servers, if you want to come forward. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you arise with me, please, and let us pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. And pay a special attention to daily bread. Just live one day, folks. Just one day. Amen.